What You Don't Know About Elderside or Elder Pride, in the book Healthcare for All, 2022, by Jerry Rhodes, CPA. A paradigm shift, self-health insurance funding trust, cut illness cost, improve wellness outcomes of the elderly patients in healthcare facilities. The book proposes shifting the paradigm away from government-socialized medicine to an enterprise model, to self-health practices, and self-health funding trusts for individuals to manage their own expenditures and select their own providers. Obamacare will not solve the pressing problems of over-medication of the elderly, funding the pursuit and treatment of illnesses, and the rationing out of the funding for the disabled and chronically ill patients. Self-health is defined as each individual accepting responsibility for their own decisions that affect their health care costs. By funding the costs through withholding from their salaries, matched by their employers, and spending the funds on preventive health measures, and preservation of their own future health care needs expenditures for the greater good are reduced according to the CDC, by 46% and outcomes improved 100%. Remedy elder side, and restore elder pride are more than eye-popping, heart-stopping words coined to help draw attention to this book. Elder side in practice is the systematic institutionalization of the elderly in nursing homes, a system that does little more than warehouse patients who receive substandard and inappropriate care that prematurely decertifies many and abuses many more. In the process, elder care wastes productive lives and clearly does not meet America's needs as an aging society in pursuit of a quality of life, independently of their own home. Restoring elder pride enterprise model is the solution to that problem, a solution that provides and pays for restorative care for these same patients and rewards the caregivers for their efforts or they will be facing empty beds. No one wants to live in a nursing home. Everyone knows if you go in, you rarely come out. It is the place to go die not live for rent by the government. Their goal is to get restored and returned to the community. Even the nursing home tagline does not fool anyone. That is why there are no respectable flagships, acknowledged leaders, or standard bearer in the industry. However, clearly 330-plus million Americans, legal and illegal, will be touched by this paradox at some point in their lives. Most sooner than later, with aging and chronic illness boring down on all of us. Exposes on the nursing home industry are popular for shedding light on the horrors of this corrupt and soon-to-be-bankrupt system. But no one, not authors or politicians, or providers or the medical community, has offered a proven, practical, and workable solution. Until now, Restore Elder Pride examines this debilitating problem that will continue to plague most Americans until it is fixed. History shows that nursing home abuse is directly linked to the manner in which these facilities are paid for their services. It is a cruel paradox that the federal government is both a beneficent provider of reimbursement dollars and the choke point for their disbursement. Sees called a monopsony, a one-buyer market. This very timely book offers practical, proven solutions for fixing the problem, a field-tested system that is already in use, and has a proven track record for delivering successful outcomes to patients and caregivers. Each political election avoids a comprehensive solution to the problems of healthcare delivery because the current payment methods are supported by providers who fund the political process, but don't want to be held accountable for their income with measurable outcome results. So, healthcare and elder care are bound to be major issues, and this book is sure to be a catalyst for discussion and change. Just look at the voting pool. 77 million baby boomers, 10,000 per day filing for Social Security, and 7,000 per week filing for Medicare and Medicaid, that grew up expecting the best of everything, are turning 60 this decade. If the nursing home industry does not change, they can only expect the worst. About 38 million people have joined AARP, because they want bargaining power, 1.3 down from 1.7 million 10 years ago. People are already institutionalized in nursing homes, and are facing extinction. 
and millions more will have to face the possibility of one day joining the list of a warehousing system, victims. For the debt clock www.usedebtclock.org, as of March 20, 020-23, unfunded Medicare $35 trillion, Medicaid $20 trillion, and $22 trillion Social Security or a total of $77 trillion for non-entitlements. Since they are funded by American savings accounts matched by employers, the unfunded social spend-in debt is increasing at $250 billion per week for 77,000 baby boomers and 111 million total recipients drawing benefits, costing $3.5 trillion annual outlays, over 50% of the federal and state social budgets annually. The funds are invested in short- and long-term U.S. Treasuries at current yield interest rates 4.34% for 3 months to 3.62% for 30-year terms, now inverted due to high-risk long-term 1.3% rates, while the average return on the U.S. stock market for the last 50 years is 10% as of March 2023, with nine recessions since 1960, primarily 1982, 2007, 2020 to 2023, COVID-19 three caused by Federal Reserve discount rate increases, a 10% yield on $77 trillion Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security investment for a 33,000 Dow equals $7.7 trillion annual return on a stock market investment. With the Federal Reserve record of causing recessions, USA would be smart to reduce their risk on American stock market rather the U.S. Treasury low and inverted yield rate. In the 70s, Milton Friedman, winner of a Nobel Prize for Economics, recommended Peru to invest its social spending reserves in the Peruvian stock market that returned 10% per year versus low-return government securities. Due to the Peruvian socialist movement and away from capitalist enterprise, has suffered some setbacks in its decision to follow pure capitalism philosophy. In my books The American Enterprise Party Trilogy I recommend a similar fix for a quasi-reorganization of the USA debt and deficit spending that has bankrupted its society for decades to come. The plan is to go on offensive, not defensive spending on downsizing government social spending and upsized enterprise investment in the USA stock market and take back American mutual fund investments and land grabs of U.S. farmland from foreign investments to build back American economy and ghettos to keep America great. Capitalizing on Americanism using the leverage of American capitalism and American socialism in our investment of social and private investors in the American last fair, free market enterprise stock market also, the overall goal is to win the trade war we are currently losing by investing in our enterprise-sing risk-taking, American ethical, and patriotic workforce, the best and most productive in the world, Jerry Rhodes, founder and CEO of the American Enterprise Swing Vote Party. www.americanenterprisepoliticalparty.org A published author of Edder Side, Restore Elder Pride, Healthcare for All the Boomers Are Coming, America in the Red Zone, Never Too Old to Live, Lifestyles for Aging, 12 Vows for Staying Married, Americana, Revisiting Orwell's 1984, An Animal Farm, and the American Enterprise Party Trilogy, 2022. This is uh, the introduction to the book, uh, Elder Side, Remedy Elder Side and Restore Elder Pride. What is Elder Side? Elderside, it sounds mysterious and dangerous. It sounds frightening, disturbing, and intriguing. It sounds like something we would not want to be a part of, and yet it is deeply ingrained, and, and yet it is a deeply ingrained part of us all. It sounds like something we would want to change if we could, and it is something we can and must change because the 
for most Americans, Elderside will one day be a sad and menacing presence in our lives. It is easy to find Elderside, step into just about any American nursing home and take a deep breath. If your senses are assailed by soiled clothes and bedding, waste and wasted lives, and the prevailing uneasiness of decay, you are in the presence of Elderside. If you see hopelessness and scattered wheelchairs and walkers and empty parking places and empty beds and faraway eyes and tears and bruises, you are in the presence of Elderside. If you hear crying and shouting and frustration and anger and incessant call bells and deafening silence, you are in the presence of Elderside. Elderside is a systematic institutionalization of the elderly and the infirmed in nursing homes, taking away their dignity, privacy, companionship, and feelings of self-worth. Elder abuse and the mistreatment of senior citizens in nursing homes are now shockingly common and increasingly so. Today's victims are our patients, our parents, brothers, and sisters. One day we may join that group. That is why I wrote this book. Once you find its source, even Niagara Falls can be turned off. The presence, the premise of this book is that we can change the route of healthcare by turning off the faucet of current funding, rerouting it to pay for performance-based uh, on based on medical evidence and then turning it back on. But the shift must be made by all of the stakeholders, not just the providers or the government. We all have a stake in preserving health and avoiding the chronic illnesses that now beset society at a fearful pace. However, the forces must be on moving to a deductive method of delivery, not the current inductive methods practiced by all of the health care professionals and paying agents. I want to change or rather preform the nursing home industry in America and do away with Elderside forever. I've learned how to do just that in converting over 150 skilled nursing facilities to restorative model of care funded by Medicare, not Medicaid. This book is my why and how to guide for eliminating institutionalized Elderside in the rest of the more than 16,000 American nursing homes. It must be a simple fit. That's why I need the help of the 77 million baby boomers, many of whom turned 60 in 2006, the 36 million members and aren't, the 1.7 million people currently living in nursing homes and everybody else. But as you will soon see, once we embrace and begin to make this change, it will become a rolling jug juggernaut that will gather everyone in its wake. Or will embrace and, and begin to, to make the change. It will become a rolling juggernaut that will gather everyone in its wake. The truth is we have to change hearts and minds more than laws. We have to change attitudes and perceptions and procedures. We have to change business models and practices. But in the end, we will be creating a much healthier business and healthier people. In the end, we will provide dramatically improved care and staff morale while the operators and the government 
make and save more money. My purpose here is not to cast blame, but to create energy. If the operators, the government, the care providers, and the nursing home con consumers, uh, you and me, would band together, we could set new standards for elderly care that all Americans would be proud of using this model. We can remedy elder side and restore elder pride. Throughout the book, I use the term pro, pro form rather than reform or transform to refer to the type of performance we need. This may sound like a play on words, but it is not. We need a system that you preform the care of elderly in pursuit of outcomes. In other words, to help them to get healthier so we can measure performance against a quality standard. If the patient's health conditions are improving, then we are doing, or we are clearly doing the right things. This approach will, will replace the current reactionary system, which only pursues treatment, counts mistakes, and pays more for illness than wellness. It is managing the, the process before the fact, not after, and eliminates doubt in, in advance of the action to alter and shape the outcome. This is gonna require my background in elder care to be successful. I didn't enter the workforce with the idea of preforming the nursing home industry. I was simply trying to build a career and raise a family just like everybody else. I was a quick study, but good, had good analytical skills a head for accounting and a neck for managing people. My career opportunities give me a sickening firsthand view of sad circumstances under which most American nursing homes operate. Sure, there were abuses and mismanagement, but in many cases, there were also misunderstandings about how to interpret the convoluted regulations governing the industry and how to get the dollars, dollars per patient that the government was willing to give if you provided the proper paperwork. The quality of care continued to erode as businesses tried to stay afloat. It took experience and a number of personal tragedies to bring me to this point and put me on this path. I was hired fresh out of college by Arthur Anderson Company as a consultant and auditor. One of my first audits in 1962 was examining Blue Cross hospital cost reports when Medicare was passed into law in June 1966, I was assigned to the Blue Cross account to teach hospitals how to set up record-keeping systems for Medicare. In January 1967, the skilled component of Medicare, skilled nursing component of Medicare was enacted. The nursing homes were to were the venue of Aetna Insurance Company. Later in mid-70s, Aetna would become a client and hire me to audit nursing home cost reports. I would also be engaged to do auditing of operations and claims processing for federal, for the federal government, Department of Health, Education and Welfare. I left Arthur Anderson and Co Company in 1968 to become a partner in a CPA firm in Springfield, Illinois. I set up the healthcare division and was involved in auditing and consulting with Catholic hospitals. During my next 10 years in auditing, the use of computers began to 
explode. I gained invaluable experience in computer applications for cost accounting and quality control systems. I moved from Springfield to Peoria in 1975 and became a partner in a regional CPA firm. Based on my experience, they asked me to set up their healthcare practice, and I began to, re to specialize in nursing homes. Part of our consulting practice was to utilize computers for billing and, and accounting applications. Through my involvement in Nursing Home Trade Association, I began, association, I began testifying before legislative committees regarding reimbursement issues. In 1976, I was recruited by the Illinois Healthcare Association and the National Council for Long-Term Care uh, to do a joint study with Keith Hudson, the CEO of Americana, the largest long-term care provider, and Sam Gunnarsson, the president of Turtle Creek, the <clears throat> second largest chain operator. That joint study earned us even wider industry recognition when the approval of the Department of Health, Education and Welfare and its division of long-term health care, long-term care services, along with the joint funding by the American Healthcare Association and National Council, we were assigned the task of developing a white paper on how nursing homes should be prospectively reimbursed for Medicare and Medicaid services. In January 1977, the white paper was published and presented to Faye Abdella, RAN, Director of the Division of Long-Term Care and Assistant to the Surgeon General of the United States. This paper outlined a system of reimbursement for nursing services that is based on minutes of care given for problems that are identified in patient assessments upon admission and throughout the stay in a nursing home. The PACE patient assessment and care evaluation instrument, the result of our findings, consists of 82 pages of data collection. PACE was beta tested in a number of nursing homes. It was rejected due to its complexity and time commitments. From the, these early beginnings came the current resident assessment instrument and minimum data, system, data set. To make the system administratively simpler, the minimum data set identified 18 problem triggers that were more than a, there are more than a hundred. The system was released for testing in 1980s and later became put in, into use in, the 19, in 1989. As a required minimum data collection tool, both nursing homes and long-term care software companies became, began developing systems to implement a standardized admitting and care planning approach based on these 18 MBS problem triggers. The original assessment PACE was trialed and failed because it had 82 pages. It was 82 pages long and cumbersome. The MDS experiment sent the process too far in the other direction and left us with only 18 problem triggers. Unfortunately, Minimizing the potential problems that the elderly might suffer also minimize their care and associated reimbursement. The Department of Health, Human, Health uh, Department of Health and Human Services, formerly HEW, under the auspices of the Healthcare Financing Administration (HICFA), now CMS, teamed up with John Morris and New York University to make the the assessment simpler. 
and easier to implement. That same group developed a reimbursement algorithm termed resource utilization groups or RUGs for pay on the basis of the MDS assessment. The formula and payment tool were beta tested in six states beginning in 1987 and finalized in 1998 for implementation on January 1, 1999. Today, the MDS has evolved to a third level and 53 payment categories up from the original 44 RUGS categories. The RUGS function must, much like they had in the 1980s with diagno diagnosis-related groups, DRGs for hospital reimbursement in the 1990s with relative value units, uh, RVUs for physician reimbursement. The intent of the Medicare Medicaid payment system is to go to a prospective method that relates reimbursement to a level of care required. However, it is a payment method, not a staffing tool or a cost accounting formula. When we originally designed the prospective payment methodology, it was intended to be a variable rate based on the patient's problems and the demand on the nurses and therapists for labor time needed to restore the patient, which would be reduced as the patient was restored. The financial incentives were cost reductions and better outcomes. As more patients came, more would be restored. Unfortunately, this philosophy and strategy was boycotted by many government bureaucrats who theorized it would be too complex and administrative, unfeasible to pay on such a basis. As a result, we have a system that today only provides incentives to keep patients sick. It uses an average per patient payment rate based on a minimum of problems. Thus, there is never any incentive to pursue healthier outcomes. In effect, any system of payment that is based on averages will not promote quality. Average and quality, average and quality are not bedfellows. The current reimbursement methods are flawed from the outset. Over the last 15 years, I've consulted with over 150 skilled nursing facilities to help them align quality with reimbursement. The primary objectives we face arise from the outdated infrastructure of today's nursing homes. The departmental structure driven by pecking order, turnover, absenteeism, and erratic quality has become an accepted norm in most facilities. The operator's plea for a solution has become, give me more Medicaid money and I will do a better job. I have been around nursing homes since the daily rate was $18 and now it's 10 times that amount. Yet the industry is still not satisfied with its rate of payment. Now with bankruptcy predicted for the Medicaid program and concern over financial stability of Medicare, perhaps the nursing home culture will come, will be more willing to embrace change. To signify the culture, let me just ask you, ask yourself, would you put a loved one in a nursing home? Would you want to be admitted to a nursing home? Do you believe quality of life ends at the nursing home door? Do you think nursing homes are making too much money? Do you believe nursing homes are underpaid, therefore understaffed? Do you feel it's government's fault that nursing homes are understaffed? and underpaid and underappreciated? Do you believe nurses and nurses aides are underpaid? 
you feel aging America is our most pressing national problem. Can the chronic disease, can chronic disease be prevented or eventually alleviated? Would you volunteer in a nursing home? The next podcast will be part one, Elders, Pride, and Idea is Born. This is the forward to my book, um, Elder Side, subtitled, You Don't Know What You Don't Know. Uh, it's about a remedy to elder side by restoring elder pride. The forward was written by Maya Hennessy, a social worker who is also the author uh, of the book, If Only I'd Had This Caregiving Book, when she had to institutionalize her husband. I'll quote uh, this, her wording of the forward in the book. Jerry Rhodes's book on restoring elder pride is one of the most important books to be published regarding the nursing home industry in decades, a model for nursing home reform. The book illuminates totally preventable atrocities and offers viable solutions. <clears throat> the elder pride model is a perfectly choreographed dance of patients, loved ones, employees, political, economic, and cultural forces, and incorporates all the elements of highly successful evidence-based collaborative projects with e easily attainable solutions to the shameful abuse, neglect, and wasteful resources in the nursing home industry. Throughout my career in human, human services, I've advocated for the oppressed and fought to change systems, learning lessons from master communicators and change agents. As a counselor, supervisor, executive director, state employee, and employee and woman's substance abuse and treatment specialist, I've always been fascinated with group dynamics and the synergistic power of collaboration to launch sweeping changes. I've been in environments that were empowering and others that were oppressive. I've had the privilege of being on high-level committees and witnessing policymakers courageously and radically changing <clears throat> life-saving policies. From the vantage point of my personal and professional experiences, I'm honored to give you a glimpse into the elder pride model. In 1995, my husband was dying from brain cancer. After numerous medical emergencies, falls, and endless frustration of trying unsuccessfully to get the home services we desperately needed my health began to fail. More rapidly than his, I had to face the fact that for his own safety, <clears throat> he had to go into nursing a nursing home, but I had to find the right one. One of my closest girlfriends accompanied me as we traipsed through dirty, depressing, cold, unfriendly nursing homes that reeked of urine, homes filled with broken hearts and the broken bodies of drugged up terrified looking patients. We pressed on in our search for facilities that were cheerful and clean, that offered fun and stimulating activities, good food, flexible visiting hours, and lots of warm and friendly interactions between staff and patients. 
we found two that matched all of my criteria. I knew there was nothing I could do to prevent my husband's death, but I was determined to fight to the finish to assure his safety and comfort. So I borrowed a friend's lab coat and sneaked in during the night watching and listening to the interactions between staff and patients to see if the cheerful atmosphere during the day was the same after hours. I never regretted the nursing home I picked, but I wondered how do nursing homes where the elderly are buried alive stay open? Aren't reviewers supposed to uncover, reviewers meaning the surveyors, uh, supposed to uncover violations and overcome corrective action? There's certainly no shortage of reviews and reviewers. The Joint Commission on Accreditation, uh, Commission on Accreditation of Rehab Facilities, State Departments of Public Health, Federal, State, County, and City Government Regulators, Ombudsman, Licensing and Funding Bodies. Why can't they put a stop to the abuse and neglect, the confining of drug patients to wheelchairs, the mistakes in diagnosis, the over-medicating, and the dangerous drug interactions. When a survey is scheduled, the staff starts dashing around, frantically auditing files, checking and double-checking, inserting missing dates, details, and documentation. Hysteria abounds while patient care takes the back seat. Aren't the surveyors supposed to assess the quality of care? Facilities justify their actions they saying they must stop at nothing to get high scores to avoid their scrutiny. After all, they say publication of low scores might mean fewer admissions, therefore less revenue, and then patients will get even less care. So they signal the alert, all hands on deck, surveyors are coming, reviewers are coming, when in effect they're supposed to be a surprise. Everyone is scared. Surveyors are scared that some are scared that some blatant violation they didn't find will hit the news or TV a week later. The administrator's job hangs on survey scores, so he or she does a bunch of saber rattling at the director of nursing, who in turn strikes fear in the hearts of everyone who reports to her, and so on and so on. Patient care suffers while everyone runs around trying to doctor up the paperwork. Hide, fix, cover up, replace, creative writing its best. No one in that food chain sleeps for weeks before a site visit, while a hurricane of finger pointing whips through the facility. Nursing homes are regulated and surveyed upside down and up, upside and down this, the other with little or no coordination or collaboration across the various systems. These redundant reviews overburden facilities, the high and low quality ones alike, without making one iota of difference. The toothless watchdogs called surveyors bark and growl, write endless reports, cite violations galore, and demand corrective action plans backed with threats for noncompliance and nothing changes. Nursing home violations continue. Surveyors keep critiquing. And worst of all, patients keep suffering. I know from experience while training site reviewers that after minimal training, nursing home surveyors will embrace the benefits of the elder side audit trail that makes surveys, interviews, 
and investigations far easier. Corrective action and the follow-up steps are built right into the record-keeping process. Reviews will be more accurate and conducted in a fraction of the time. Additional enforcement is not the answer. Counting mistakes rather than coaching preference, coaching performance never works. Currently, multiple systems and ridiculous power struggles each demand their own unique reports, refuting or refusing to collaborate, forcing facilities to write and rewrite. You have to be a CPA, a psychologist, an FBI decoder, an attorney, an investigative supporter, and a fly on the wall all built into one to reconcile the endless fragmented paperwork, which is 99.9% handwritten. So surveyors stay for a week and they leave the broken hearts behind and the patients desperately hoping that this surveyor will answer their prayers, sink deeper into despair, watching yet another surveyor walk away, talking with him, taking with him all hope. One of the many highly successful collaborative projects I excuse me, participated in was the Real Choice Systems Change Project. This collaborative, client-centered, federally funded pilot project assists nursing home patients with multi-system complex cases, uh, uh, mental illness, homelessness, aging, developmental and physical disabilities. The team helps coordinate services necessary to live in the community. Rockford, Illinois was one of the pilot's sites, successfully diverted hundreds of, of individuals from nursing homes by providing the appropriate community services. Those who had to be placed in nursing homes temporarily were provided restorative services and followed by a case manager who coordinated the community services. My participation in this project gave me a deeper insight into the challenges to those within the industry and its stakeholders, patients, families, community service, politician, licensing and funding bodies to, to name a few. Real choice and elder side share client-centered and collaborative approaches. Elder Pride is more comprehensive, assuring the best possible services for all. Those who will go home, those who will stay with limited improvements, and those like my husband who will eventually die. Collaboration has many challenges, as I learned after years of working on collaborative projects in state government. Even when the majority agrees in concept, the more powerful bureaucrats often dictate services, even those who know nothing about clinical services. That's why the successes of the Real Choice Change Project were such victories. Those successes underscore the absolute necessity for Jerry Rhodes's Elder Pride model. With his 40 years of industry, industry experience, yes, Jerry has proved a proven solution for America's nursing home problems. Eldersite is a progressive evidence-based nursing home performance model, a call to action with powerful yet practical steps to improve quality of life for patients, reduce waste and dramatically change the system adrift in a sea of losses, loss of lives, loss of compassion, loss of money. Nursing homes have adopted the Elder Pride model, nursing homes that have adopted the Elder Pride model, love the easier paperwork, increased revenues, reduced 
turnover rates, and high satisfaction surveys from patients, families, and staff alike. The model is synergetic, center, synergetic, empowering patients and staff while enhancing quality. Whether you're the researcher analyzing the data, a caring employee in the nursing home, suffering from compassion fatigue, a patient or a loved one, an administrator frustrated with time-consuming compliance reviews, nursing staff wrestling with excessive redundant paperwork, a state surveyor trying to uncover problems of abuse and neglect, or a politician ready to demand more affordable loving care for their aging population, elder pride is the solution you have been searching for. The philosophical underpinning of elder pride are respect and dignity, restorative care, a richly rewarding team environment and record keeping that follows patient improvements. Elder pride is a model of congruency between patient-centered care, staff and team activities and documentation that highlights progress while providing an audit trail that just as easily prevents violations. Jerry Rhodes and his family have dedicated their lives and all their resources to creating and shaping this vital nursing home performance model. His experience, education, passion, and lifelong commitment to revolutionize, or as he puts it, preforming, not reforming, but preforming the nursing home industry have all contributed to his reputation as one of the best reimbursement experts in the country, but he does not fight this battle alone. Jerry's wife, Sherry Rhodes, is the chief executive officer of the Dorothy C. White Foundation, dedicated to Sherry's mother, who died of abuse, of abuse and neglect in a nursing home. One day, Jerry commented that we are a nation that adopts highways, kids, and pets. Why not our elderly? The, the words were no sooner out of his mouth than Sherry adopted a nursing home patient. Um, adopt, Sherry adopted a nursing home patient. While visiting her adopted patient, other patients reached out for a touch of her loving spirit, all eager for her gentle love. Soon other family members, friends, employees, and volunteers adopted elders too. The adopted nursing home patient program was born, quickly gathered steam and garnered local and national press coverage. Jerry's vision for a computerized approach to improve care and increased revenues was driven by his son, Kip Rhodes. With his programming skills, Kip developed a workable, practical system that continues to evolve under his care. And as it does, so it improves thousands of lives. Among Kip's many creative contributions and is a guidebook for simple, enjoyable exercises that, that have profound effect, improving and preserving the overall health of elders in facilities. Time and time again, I have had the joy of seeing the Rhodes family in action Respect, dignity, and restorative care are the heart of the Winchester House Mission in Vernon Hills, Illinois, where the elder pride principles are working daily for all to see. Interactions between patients and staff are warm, friendly, playful, and family-like. I recall one visit in August 2007, just after the Dorothy C. White Foundation donated a Bowflex, donated Bowflex equipment to Winchester House. Patients were using the equipment and were delightfully engaged in conversation with visitors and the Rhodes family. A resident proudly showed us something she'd won at bingo. She said, 
that when they run out of presents, they win money, but they like the presents better. Sherry said, maybe we could ask on the website that regifting items be sent here. The patient's eyes lit up. Oh, yes, she said. Gifts are much more fun. Sherry got back to the office and requested regifting items for Winchester House. Since then, 13 more Bowflex systems have been placed in deserving nursing homes that are committed to restoring the dignity and functioning of their patients. Driven by the spirit of compassion and collaboration, the Rhodes family in, uh, invents love and dedication to elder pride. It permeates their models and and deeds. The subscript uh, with a footnote at the bottom is C. Dorothy White Foundation website. Adopt a nursing home patient, patient program. They give the Rhodes family gives of their time, their money, their arts, and their heartaches to make a difference. As a result of their efforts, the elder pride model is not just theory. It is a living, breathing, successful solution already working in over 150 American nursing homes, and it is a healthy solution for all the rest. As Jerry details throughout this book, every person in this nation is a stake stakeholder who will benefit from jumping on board this lifeboat. Patients of all pa patients of all ages, fa family caregivers, baby boomers, ombudsmen, state and federal site. Um, surveyors, operators, and nursing home employees, politicians, and healthcare providers. I wish I had the choice of elder pride homes when I was looking for a place to take my husband. My search would have been easier. My search would have been easier. I encourage you to read this book to discover how this model will benefit you professionally, personally, financially, and emotionally, and to take that all-important first step to restoring elder pride. Good morning. Uh, this is Jerry Rhodes and Sherry Rhodes coming to you from around the breakfast table. Today's topic, uh, what you don't know about elder side or elder pride. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But what you don't know, you don't know. So the book was written on elder side in 2009. That's when I was, uh, I had my consulting practice. Uh, we specialized in turning around nursing homes, improving their operations all the way from odor to environment, to staffing, to getting people better, getting them home. Uh, so Elderside was, was the beginning of uh, our management of nursing homes and then ownership over a period of from 2009, I guess that was the date of this, 2009. Yeah, we purchased uh, <clears throat> a nursing home in Muscatine, Iowa, September 9th, no, September 4th, 2009. Uh, that became our first 
venture into ownership. Prior to that, we'd managed, uh, I'd managed nursing homes in the past, either as my accounting firm being involved or I had management contracts. That was before I got uh, Sherry involved and my son. So over a period of some 40 years uh, in the healthcare in the healthcare business, and then specializing more in skilled facilities, which were post-hospital. They took their new admissions from directly from the hospital, which made the operation much more complex because of the level of care versus what they called intermediate care, which was more more a housing environment. And then there was assisted living that was even less dependent. Patients, I always call them patients. Residents may be an independent living, but an assisted living and intermediate care and then skill care, uh, these are patients. They, they don't come to your facility to rent out rooms. The government wanted us to call them all residents. Therefore, that would force all our nursing homes to be better and treat them like they were just renting out rooms. Uh, De-emphasize the medical part of it, which was ironic because that's the what nursing homes grew out of. I was there. My specialty in the early 60s and the 70s was hospitals, particularly small uh, hospitals and smaller communities. And what happened is that the elderly, when they were admitted to the hospital, had an average length of stay of anywhere from 10 to 25 days, uh, maybe until they expired. And the hospital rates were so uh, high that uh, the government decided they were not no longer going to allow Medicare and Medicaid to pay for hospital care for those kinds of lengths of stay that they would they would pay that if the hospital would designate a certain number of rooms for step-down care, subacute care, skill care. And anybody that was assisted living, they'd have to get into a traditional nursing home. And then they forced those nursing homes to downscale into independent living. So we started to have campuses of care that were trying to provide all levels in different buildings. And they were principally not-for-profit religious organizations and found out that the, the higher the level of care, the more complex the uh, care became. And therefore the staff needed to be uh, educated. The nursing staff needed to be educated in, in almost hospital care because they were coming directly from the hospital after a stay of four days. Uh, the hospital was being paid for a what they called rugs uh no it wasn't rugs is is drgs diagnosis related groups so they were paying for an average rate for a certain diagnosis with complications they got a few more days but the doctors were all measured on length of stay because the longer they stayed the more the hospital lost so the skilled nursing beds in the hospitals uh, 
they couldn't handle they couldn't handle that level of care with that small amount of patients. So they would then discharge them to what were then designated as skilled uh, uh, skilled nursing facilities. SNFs was the acronym. So over a period of time, the care got spread out, but it didn't get better. As a matter of fact, it probably got worse because the funding from the Medicare and the Medicaid standpoint wasn't adequate. And Obamacare didn't help in the nursing home business because it was designed to, to serve the uninsured younger population. And of course, the younger population with their social security accounts are helping fund Medicare patients and Medicaid patients later on. So somehow, some way, the government is paying the bill, even though the private insurance industry is processing claims and also charging for uh, those premiums. It's all integrated into what I call a monopsony, uh, which is a one-payer uh, one system. It's broken down into separate units, but it's all... Uh, socialized medicine. Uh, uh, our bureaucrats do everything they can to avoid calling it that, but that's exactly what it is. So in our case, uh, in Elder Side, that book, I republished it later as because it was it was subtitled "Restore El Elder Pride," no, "Remedy Elder Side and Restore Elder Pride." And then I, I think the Elder Side title may have scared off some readers, so I renamed it Restore Elder Side. No, Restore Elder Pride to make it the next step in the cycle of going from a pretty pitiful operation to a better operation to renew and restore our elderly pride in uh, <laughs> their living conditions. So 2009, we acquired uh, the uh, Muscatine Care Center in Muscatine, Iowa, from a client, one of our consulting clients that was wanting to sell it. It was 100, 100 beds, maybe 110 beds. And then in October of that same year, we took over a client facility in Little Rock, Arkansas, that was going to be closed or just keep it open, we, we uh, got it on contract. Should have taken a management contract, but we bought it on contract. That was in October 10th, 2009. So taking two on in two months probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but uh, we then purchased Washington Nursing Center in Washington, Iowa in 2011. That was again in October of 2011. I had, I had some other people helping me with, of course, with the operations and the management of them, and I had to get financing, and it, it became a, a whole more complicated world. Do you remember that, Sherry? Mm, yes. Mm. Do you think I was crazy? No. 
Uh, I was wanting to get into enough facilities that my son and I and, and Sherry could demonstrate our restorative care system. So we coined the company All American Care, uh, the restorative care company. So why is restorative care different than skill care or uh, rehab facilities or subacutes or all these other isms that were thrown into the marketplace? Well, restorative care embraces all of those, but its goal is to restore people and get them back into the community or at a lower level of care and get them back home. Uh, nursing homes typically are, they work hard to get the admissions because no one wants to be there. And then they hang on to them till they go to the hospital. And then when they come back, they can't handle them for the amount of, of money that is, is involved. So again, we got those specialized care centers, none of which were really built around a restorative model. And uh, the restorative model is focused on not how much you're paid, but on the patient's problems. And the better job at restoring those, there are more resources to be provided, particularly by Medicare. Medicaid's pretty much a, re a warehousing concept. After the, the patient has run out of money and Medicare has, won't pay for it any longer, Medicaid then pays the bill until people expire, but they can't, they can't get the Medicaid funding unless they've spent down, which is the worst concept ever developed, spent down their personal assets to a $2,000 burial fee. And of course that turns everybody into welfare patients for Medicaid is a welfare program. It's not paid by the patient savings accounts out of Social Security, even though it's paid out of the Social Security funds. Uh, uh, the government shares in that at different levels with the states who then take part of their state income taxes and try to, try to fund this unfundable, <laughs> unaccountable Medicaid program. And I say unaccountable or uh, unsustainable is because there are no um, goals for measuring outcomes and paying for outcomes. All of this is all based upon on algorithms paying for diagnosis and uh, not for uh, solving or, or restoring people's problems. So they can, they can be discharged. And so this was to be a model in three locations, two in Iowa and one in Arkansas, implementing the All-American Care Enterprise model, utilizing the system that my son Kip and Sherry and I designed and developed in our consulting business over the years. So it was all based upon modeling out the care I called artificial intelligence through a library that my son and I developed was triggered by physicians involvement. We had to, we had to get it that way or Medicare wouldn't pay or Medicaid wouldn't pay unless the physicians were ordering the care and the prescription drugs. So we designed it around the physician doc, uh, 
diagnosis, and then we tied it into nursing diagnosis, which meant what are the nurses going to be doing to solve the problems that the doctor is giving them an order for? And uh, so there's about, there were about 16,000 diagnosis codes that the government said they were going to pay the hospitals for. Well, those stepped down to a nursing home. You had to link it into the hospitalization. And so we designed it so it would list the potential nursing problems. And there were about 120 of those possibilities. So it was all designed now to, to design a, a, a uh, uh, analytical tool to be able to diagnose the, the patient's problems because the next step down is, well, what are we going to do to not necessarily solve those, but to uh, treat those? And a lot of, a lot of it embraced the, uh, rehab therapy, but most of it was the, the nursing department because we had them 24 hours a day. The therapist had them uh, maybe three hours a day. And of course, then the nurses don't do all the care. The nurses' aides had 24 hours to take care of them. So it was all designed ar around the concept of standard costing that, that I had been adamant that healthcare is needed since I saw that it wasn't there in 1975 when Medicare started paying for the bills and wanted a cost report to be able to know how they were going to pay and hospitals didn't even track their census, let alone their costs. And today they still don't, are not required to do anything except an annual cost report, which averages everything and doesn't assign costs to particular cases and then work through who's going to do the care and what are the goals and, and what are the outcomes. No, uh, government pays for the diagnosis, pays for input, not output. I could go on all day on this, but we did acquire these facilities. We were putting in our model because the concept was is that we, after that, we'd proven the model, we would then franchise through acquiring the properties of these rural nursing homes that are going to go out of business because they can't manage the the level of care and, and the quality of care is not good and the odor is terrible and how where did I come up with all this well my first facility that I actually went in as the administrator I was called Fox Valley and and uh, Elgin Illinois and the surveyors called it Beth Valley well I took this whole concept that I had learned in, in terms of team team uh, work into this trouble nursing home. I learned it from Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm that I was in, and applied these concepts, turned around what the surveyors called Death Valley to a, a very nice uh, skilled care facility where we, we reduced all of the, the problems and we increased the revenue because Medicare then paid because we were getting people in and out, so was Medicaid. So from that model, I went to another one, one, turned it around. They both got sold to chains. Chains are still dominating the nursing home business. Uh, and the owner is never there, of course. It's some hired gun. So, you know, if, if you listen to the first two segments of this, you're going to understand that the troubles in nursing homes 
can be solved, but they have to be solved with somebody there that is responsible for it and has money involved, investment involved, to even come close to getting the kind of quality we were getting because we were there. I was the administrator in uh, Muscatine. Sherry was the administrator in Washington. And I had another one of our people that were in our business in Arkansas implementing what you were hearing about in the book, Elder Side and Elder Pride. And out of that book grew a, a book called The Boomers Are Coming and then another book called Healthcare for All. These books are all focusing in on using artificial intelligence to guide the care, which is not to say it's robots, not at all. It's to say that all of these cases as they come in are designed out of a standardized process of diagnosis problems, interventions, goals for outcomes, and measuring outcomes against their original uh, problem list. As we work down the problems and improve their, their uh, functioning, most of it is their functioning during the day, the activities of daily living. It's not just getting rehab, which are more exercises to strengthen the, the patient. We got them out on the floor, reducing their medications because that was inhibiting most of them. And we're able to get them up and functional within uh, the programs we put on that. It wasn't just exercise programs, it was psychosocial. And it gave the nurses' aides a bigger role. The nurses' role was all involved in the coaching process for the nurses' aides. And it was a team environment. And then we had integrated into that the teams for the activities of daily living, daily living, dietary um, activities, the other elements of uh, skilled nursing. And we were discharging when we finally sold them. 57% uh, of our admissions were going back home and more were coming. So that was the whole concept that we wanted to build for a franchise and the surveyors just wouldn't leave us alone. They wanted to, to, their only view was to come in and find something wrong. And that's what they did. And they things, then found things that they find us for. They had no aspirations of making things better in these facilities or other facilities. And I'm not gonna just blame them, I blame the system. And so we finally were forced to sell. Um, because they find us for one little guy that came in, his son dropped him off. He had a moderate uh, Alzheimer's and that grew into very serious Alzheimer's in about three months. Never got payment for Medicare, Medicaid, or the, uh, wouldn't give us the social security checks. And one, and the, pay, the, the male patient hit a female patient, went into her room and they said we should have had 24 sur hour surveillance, they find us what was it, 6,000 6, a day for, I don't know, $370,000 fine. And we just signed a, a deal with a chain to buy all three of our facilities. And that, where that deal, and we had to go out and find other, uh, other buyers. Uh, we couldn't get out of that, get out of that responsibility quick enough because we didn't, we weren't uh, in control. The state surveyors were in control. 
and it's the worst system ever. Not, the surveyors have never improved nursing homes. If they had, we wouldn't have the odor. We have, wouldn't have these horror stories when you go into one. You'll see. So we kind of threw up our plans and they all just kind of floated back down. And here we are talking about it again. So I, I, that's why I wrote the books. I still have the passion. I still think that's the solution. Franchising versus uh, socialized medicine. Franchising works in, in all kinds of very positive ways in our economy and worldwide. So I still believe if right now for the change, it's the real estate business, pure and simple. It's not the people business. And they treat people like they're warehousing, not uh, care housing. So that's the introduction to this one. Uh, Sherry, you want to throw anything else in here? Um, you were in it. <laughs> no, I know. I just, when we first got the facility, I was really kind of dreading it because I'd never been in one that didn't smell terrible and whatever. But he was so determined that, you know, we could do it better. And uh, so I did. And we did. And we did better. Yeah. yeah. And in uh, Death Valley, uh, the stories in the book, uh, I'd been there five days and the director of nursing, I quit the assistant director and everybody thought I was crazy because you could smell it from the parking lot. And Sherry said, and it was decertified. The government wasn't going to pay him Medicare and Medicaid until it got fixed. And within five days, we had a drowning in the whirlpool. The, the physical therapist had the patient in a slang and walked away to chart. And the old guy must've had a stroke or something, but, when I got down there, she came running up and said the patient was underwater while he was dead. And, and I was dead in the water almost because the TV were out there, the police, the, the state. Uh, I had to call the family, let them know they were out in the state of Washington. He was 93 years old, contracted up. And they said, well, you know, at his age, he was, he was, he was not savable. And yes, uh, he might be better off now. But anyway, that that passed. We got fined. I assured the state that we were going to fix it, and we did. With some very innovative things that you could get if you read the books. Thank you for listening. Well, the thing is, Terry, we know that they don't have to be dirty, stinking facilities. And it just, it's so distressing every time you go in when you think oh my god you know nobody wants to come here but the poor patients are putting up with that and we had happy patients it was it was the most rewarding thing i feel like i've ever done well the method that i used at death valley was to get rid of cloth diapers yeah. for god's sake yeah i got that and we cleaned up the whole place it hadn't been cleaned uh, no we got rid of odors you came and later, after I'd been working yeah, on it, you right. thought I, I thought I was lying when I said it didn't have odor. <laughs> I know. He kept telling he wanted our daughter to see it when they came, she came in. And so I kind of whispered to her on this side, and I said, he's just used to it. He doesn't know that it really stinks. Because I hadn't been there for a while at this point. <coughs> and uh, we walked in. It was I could not believe it. And the patients, the whole, you know, usually 
nursing home, you see the patients sitting there like they don't know what's up and what's down. But all you have to do is talk to them, get to know them and make them, let them know that they're still important, you know. And that was the most rewarding thing, rewarding thing of the whole business. Well, the state came back in, they recertified us. They said they hadn't seen anything this nice since there was this one facility in the state that was always called the best. But they said our facilities, it was this one. The next one was called Carrington. Um, both of them, the surveyors, were, were thrilled. This was in Illinois. That's before they started taking it out on the owners when we went to Iowa. I thought it would be the same. We'd clean them up and really make them what they should be. And then the state would say, oh, well, that's the right idea and give us some help. And they did. Well, the state of Iowa was, we would come from Iowa. We were born and raised there. So we thought, oh boy, we're going to, you know, get some sympathy. Well, we got nothing but trouble from them. And uh, so uh, there's some hard feelings, but the cleaning up of the facility was very important and the environment just making it into a a care house rather than a warehouse mm -hmm. that, that we have and it's all dictated by government or government regulations get them out of it get on, in, entrepreneurs in there mm -hmm. and get the, this chain thing where I, they try to make them all the same which is i call them warehouses for the elder elderly our american care model was to design this thing around a, a, a standardized look and our standardized software setting up these systems where we could actually manage the care and cost and make a, make a profit and get people back out. And they killed it. I mean, I still have the passion, but at this point, this dream is over. But I still say, if we would, and I wrote letters to Buffett and Trump both suggesting that if you want to get into a great business, because now it's being destroyed by these chains and chain operations don't work in the people business, I can go in and we would design uh, our buildings were painted white. We call them the, what, after your mother, white D.C. White House, her, her name was Dorothy Corney White, and she was killed in a nursing home. And the interior was all done in a standardized way to really do what needs to be done in restoring people. The big focus was what do, what do we use in terms of getting them up and out of these wheelchairs and off of these hor horrendous prescription drugs that are knocking them out. We were able to get them off two thirds of their medications, they get better. And there's, there's no need for a nursing home to have bad odor. The, only, no. the reason it does is because they're not keeping the patients clean or the oh, rooms. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, yeah. I instituted, <clears throat> they had to have baths more than once a week. Yeah. Some of them, they weren't getting baths at all. No, we had to keep the patients clean. And and the, the cloth divers, we got the modern day diapers. And we wanted to get them off of diapers. If you get them up and, and functional more, they're not sitting in, you know, excrement or, you know, in their bed. We got them up, get them better, get them. I, my, my slogan was get them in, get them better and get them out of here. Well, and when we got there, our first nursing home, there was odor because the, they just weren't taking care of the patients well. 
if they're taking care of the care of the patients and keeping them clean and their room clean, which isn't that big a deal. You just hire enough staff to do it. So we had a lot of CNAs and and uh, you know people to do cleaning and keep the patients cleaned and so you know that that whole thing of nursing homes smelling bad they only do if they're not very good well and the revenue went up substantially my expertise is on medicare and, and how you get them to pay for what they should they're playing paying for 20 well i have to apologize to you if you listen this far it it shuts me down after 30 minutes and wants to keep this to 30 minute segments and i was just getting into the the meat of it probably should have started out by talking about what Medicare doesn't pay for in a nursing home. It's designed to pay for what they call post-hospital care, and you have to prove it or they deny claims. And they've denied the elderly over the years billions of dollars of care in nursing homes. So I can't blame the nursing home chains for that part of it. And that's something that, that I was able to perfect when I got involved is that I knew the Medicare rules. I helped implement Medicare in hospitals, nursing homes all over the country with Arthur Anderson Company. We had a contract with Blue Cross of America to implement Medicare. And when I went into Springfield, Illinois to, to a 700 bed nurse uh, hospital, you can imagine 700 beds, Catholic hospital, they weren't even tracking their census. And the first thing they wanted to know was how do, how do we bill? And I said, well, what's, let, show me your cost accounting system. They said, what? We don't have a cost accounting system. We send in a Blue Cross one-page cost report every year, and that's just to settle up with them on, on averages. No, we don't have a cost system. So what about your census? Well, we don't really track the number of patients in here. We've got too many to keep track of. Well, from that point, being an, a CPA and accountant, I knew that not only did I have a problem in trying to instruct these people on how to fill out a cost report and how to get paid, because we didn't even know at that point, and we didn't have a billing form. So this was all that the, the hospitals and the physicians wanted to know is how do we bill? How do we get paid? And we don't want a lot of paperwork because we got all these people to take care of. Well, I had to go and meet with an accounting firm in town. Uh, the partner in charge of that accounting firm uh, we struck struck up a friendship because his company had 26 Catholic hospitals that were not going to have to participate in the Medicare program, get certified, follow the rules and regulations, and fill out cost accounting information, which they didn't have any idea how to do that why to do that other than they wouldn't get paid if they didn't do it. So that goes back to 1975. I've talked my, my way into um, a partnership with this accounting firm because of my expertise. And uh, so then I was a partner in that firm and I was a partner in another national firm uh, specializing in uh, healthcare principally hospitals, but then it evolved into me getting a an assignment where I was the main expert in the state of Illinois on Medicare and Medicaid, and I was 
uh, then hired by the associations to represent them when it came to the legislature. So then I got involved in, in how government uh, interacts with rules and regulations, particularly in public health. And it was a nightmare as well. So through all of that experience and, and books grew out of that experience, I became an expert in the, not, a, not, not just hospitals, but the hospitals with skilled nursing units. And then they would, they would build a separate building and call it their skilled nursing home or subacute care home. And this, I've been through this whole uh, transition from hospital to uh, skilled care in the hospital to skilled care outside the hospital. And then of course, if they didn't qualify for skilled care, they had to go to an intermediate care facility and then from there to independent living. So nursing homes then just spread across the whole country because of the Medicare and Medicaid funding. And uh, so I fell into a gold mine. I didn't know how to mine it. It took years and years to develop my expertise. And then after my second go with being a partner in an accounting firm, which I was building their hospital and nursing home practice, I thought, I want to do this on my own. I had nobody wanting to hear the solutions. They don't want to hear the problems. They just want the money. And the Medicare money was just being paid out for input data, not for output. Because output's got to be based upon a standardized costing system where you're costing the care on the basis of the problems that they have, not a diagnosis. The diagnosis is just like a car. You know, you go in for help and they want diagnosis, what you think it is, uh, you know, to with what the problems are. Okay, well, I got the idea when I got my accounting firm that I needed to de design this computer system that when they're admitted, they really get, based upon the diagnosis, some options for the uh, hospital or the nursing home to be able to plan out the care on the basis of the problems, not a, a, a diagnosis and letting the nurses figure it out or the aides figure it out. No, you're going to have to have assignments to get any kind of efficiency in the care. So I was the originator of artificial intelligence in hospitalization and in skilled nursing. Hospitals still don't use it. And in the nursing homes, I had to get my own clients and put it in their, in their operations to even get clients because everybody was just sending in their bills. They got an average payment on, uh, on diagnosis. And if they lost money, they lost money or they kept them on longer than they supposed to or the claims got denied. I mean, it was just a mess. And so I was trying to bring some rational thinking to this logical, uh, I call it uh, deductive processes, not inductive thinking where you, the, the physician's in charge of all this. Okay, well, he prescribes all this, but does he have any accountability for the cost of it? Oh, no, that's, that's the provider's problem. And so you know, over the years, I'm not going to go through all this, but it is in my books on on how I dealt with this as a entrepreneur getting um, artificial intelligence into healthcare and where it took us and how it worked 
and it would work for, for all of hospitals and for all of nursing homes on the basis of these standardized costing processes that hold the physicians accountable for what they're ordering, hold the hospital accountable for what they're doing or not doing, and hold the nursing homes accountable for what they're doing or not doing. And it's, it's a very, it's a trillion dollar mess, $4 trillion a year spent on it. And there is no outcome. It's all about income. And my All-American Care, the, the, our, our slogan was um, outcome means income. Because the outcome has to be the justification for the income. And if you're able to prove the outcome, you're going to make more income. So outcome means income in our nursing home themselves and our clients, we put it in 140 different facilities around in the, at least in the Medicare side of it, because it was variable rates that we could get for the patients and keep them on Medicare longer. The, the Medicare contract says you get a hundred days per spell of illness, but the first 20 days, the government has to pay 100% of, of the cost. For the next 80 days, the patient's responsible for a co-insurance payment of around, now it's around $170 a day. Back in the day, it used to be $18 a day. And of course, the hospitals wanted the higher rate. They didn't want to take, take a chance of keeping them on longer because the government was denying claims. Any claim over 20 days got denied because they didn't have the documentation to to prove that they, they needed the care for the next 80 days to get better. Well, the elderly always needed longer than four days or 10 days or 20 days on Medicare and off. Uh, and if you kept them on longer, they denied the claim and everybody traditionally just kept them on 20 days, then put them on Medicaid after that or spent down their private resources. It was just, and still is a mess. And I spent 30, 40 years in my business career after Arthur Anderson, after I left there, trying to fix this thing and have written books and we put, I put our heart and soul in it, my son and I and, and Sherry. And it's still, if you go into a nursing home, you better hold your nose and you better not be impressed by what's going on there because it's all disorganized. It's all departmentalized rather than teams. And my famous story was on Fox Valley, I'd, I'd been there a while and I had the drowning in the whirlpool and I got past that and we were cleaning it up and getting rid of the odor. And on November, uh, this was about six months later, we got a huge 16 inch nurse, uh, snowstorm and I lived about a half an hour away. I couldn't get my car out for three days. They called me from the nursing home. I had all new director of nursing that didn't show up. The assistant director of nursing was in a panic because only half the staff got there. So we had over the phone, I had to you know, get her to focus in what they were learning is teamwork, only focus on the functions that are priorities and do it in a team environment. Don't take on the whole functionality of a patient. We'll have certain people working on certain things to get this done. Half the staff didn't show up for three days. Half the staff stayed there for three days to be able to comply with the 
nursing home regulations. When I got there three days later, something was different. You even had stragglers coming back to work, all of them claiming they couldn't get back to work. We ran this place with half the staff better that we were running it with a full complement of staff. And I always said I had 179 uh, patients and it was declining because they decertified us. And I had 179 staff, staff one-on-one, one-on-one staffing and 179 families that didn't want to come. Staff didn't want to work. After we got through this process and I was, I, I was to fix this place up so the owners could sell it. They had a lease they wanted to exercise. They want to, for a million and a quarter, they could buy it and they could sell it for 2.5 million. I should have been on a commission, which I wasn't, but I got it turned around, got it financed. They eventually did sell it and I was out of, out of the job. But in that process, we increased the revenue more than a million dollars a year. And it, they should have kept it because it was now nice. It was now recertified and it had a great reputation in surrounding community and the more people we took and got better the more that wanted to come but no they sold it to a chain and they put it right back into what it was a chain operations and i had gone on to another project the adventist church had bought 52 54 nursing homes they had no idea how to run them and the, this one over in glendale heights called carrington was losing a hundred dollars hundred thousand dollars a month and dragging them down. So the president of that of that group knew me for my reputation, contracted with me to come in and do it with their 207 bed facility that had the same problems and the same uh, uh, system worked. It came in and perfected it even more. And having a certain portion of the of the facility for Medicare patients and a certain part of the facility for the Alzheimer's or, or dementia patients. They had a third floor where they locked them in. Well, I made sure that, that those people up there were, in fact, needing that. And I found that they weren't. If we would move them down and get them functional, they were going to go home. And the whole strategy was to the day that we were running them, every, every patient got their their medication was reduced. Some came in with 23 times a day. Come on. The hospice would completely take them off because they were in the dying process and then the patients would get better. And we had them that, that couldn't walk, talk, or do anything until we got them off the medications. Then we get them up and they were now functioning and getting better. And, and actually the families wanted them back. They actually, our, our discharge rate rose to 57% which is unheard of in nursing homes. So this part of the podcast, I know it sounds kind of disjointed, but the proof in the pudding is that I have these experiences and now I have documented that in my books. Elder Side is one book. Restore Elder Pride is the next book that I had. Then I had... um, uh, healthcare for all, which used to be the boomers are coming because 77 million people are going to retire. They're retiring at 10,000 a day and going on Medicare at 7,000 a week. And they're over going to overwhelm the healthcare system even more than it's overwhelmed. 
So I've predicted some things in my other books that you could pick up, go to Amazon, pick them up. But uh, the experience is, is rooted in what I learned originally from Arthur Anderson. They recruited me out of Simpson College in Iowa, a great company that the government finally destroyed and put them out of business too. The whole thing is, you know, I got a book called uh, Failing Government Take It Away. I originally entitled it The Monopsony Game because monopsony is the problem. Monopsony is the other side of monopoly, uh, where Microsoft may be a mo monopoly for the product that they sell. Monopsony is, is, a, is a regulated government that has a single payer system where they dominate everything. And when that happens you, and you have no decentralization, then you have nothing but chaos. And there is no control of costs. There is no improvement of quality. It's a disaster. So, you know, taking this into a little po more positive light, my life is uh, at this point, I'm, I call it rehirement because I'm doing podcasts and I'm writing, still writing books. Uh, my and my wife is involved. We've been married 63 years, and uh, we just can't believe where the time has gone and what we've done. And we have four grown children, 12 grandchildren, and 11 or 12 great grandchildren. And we still exercise and try to eat right, and we go out and dance once a week. And life is good. I don't know if my podcasts are, but I'm going to keep doing them. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye.